Welcome to Zion Fellowship's Bible Wire. In these podcasts, we discuss what the Bible says, line upon line and precept upon precept. Today, George Reuter, that's me, will be continuing our study on the book of Galatians. Settle in for the next few minutes and learn more about who God is and how he loves. Welcome to episode 10. Uh, today we get to talk about sons and heirs, and we'll do that uh, from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Here are those verses. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. That's Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. So at the end of chapter 3, Paul talked about the law as if it imprisoned people. And then he talked about the law as if it were a guardian. So now, at the beginning of chapter 4, he talks about the law as a trustee. And again, the idea is that when you're young, you need to be restrained, you need to be guarded, you need a trustee. When the time is right, however, those guardrails are removed. The idea at the beginning of chapter 4 is that the child could well be the owner of everything, but a child needs a trustee so he doesn't lose everything. A child needs a trustee to prevent that child from making poor decisions with long-lasting consequences. So we put a trustee in place. That person supposedly has wisdom. That person supposedly has a knowledge of the, the potential futures of making potentially bad decisions. The trustee is a guardrail. The trustee is a guideline, is is someone who prevents great harm. And so that's the big idea at the beginning of chapter 4. Though he is the owner of everything, end of verse 1, beginning of verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. When we were children, Paul goes on to explain, we were enslaved by the elementary principles of the world. Uh, it's an interesting thing to think about, that we were enslaved by the elementary principles of the world. Before I talk about it, I'll let F.F. Bruce talk about it. Quote, The word stoicheia, meaning elementary, elemental principles, means primarily things placed side by side in a row. It is used of the letters of the alphabet, the ABCs, and then because the learning of the ABCs is the first lesson in a literary education, it comes to mean rudiments 
first principles as in Hebrews 5.12. Again, since, still quoting, again, since the letters of the alphabet were regarded as the elements of which words and sentences are built up, stoicheia comes to be used of the elements which make up the material world. See also 2 Peter 3.10 and 12. This would be the natural meaning of tastoikeia to kosmu, unless the context dictated otherwise, end quote. Paul says that when we were young, we were enslaved by elementary principles. What are those? Are they elementary teachings? Well, yes. If so, for Jews, that's the law. For Gentiles, those are basic pagan principles. Uh, think about it even in our culture. There are elementary principles. There are, there are principles that basically all of us in Western societies agree on. Some of those elementary principles don't exactly jive with Christian thought. But we are enslaved by them because they're sort of in the ethos. They're sort of in the, the whole vibe of what it is to be a Westerner in 2022. There are elementary principles that we sort of accept at bedrock, uh, and we didn't really pick them up anywhere specific. They're just everywhere. And again, for the Jews, that's the law. It was everywhere. For various Gentiles, those are basic pagan principles. Um, I'm going to say pagan in a lowercase p kind of a way. Uh, every society has elementary principles that sort of set up what it means to be successful. Note here that the contrast is with the coming of Christ. The contrast is between the elementary principles and the coming of Christ. So this is not a passage about how each individual learns incorrect things that need to be made right but rather it is a passage about how entire people groups were adrift before Jesus came. Um, and obviously those people groups are still adrift in their elementary principles, but those principles can be corrected with the gospel. So yet again, in the center of today's passage, we find Jesus. Verse 4 but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Yet again, in the center of today's passage, we find Jesus. We were lost, we were completely adrift, with no hope at all, and God sent his son to redeem us. Jesus was born under the law, so he could fulfill the law and thus remove its requirements from us. Why? So we could be adopted as sons and daughters of God. Think about the lengths God went through to get us as kids. I mean, we understand uh, many of us may know someone who has adopted a child or been a foster parent or, or things of that nature. And we understand the sacrifice that those people make. We know that it is expensive to adopt a child, that it is a significant labor of love. There's a lot of energy you expend uh, as a couple 
to adopt a child, God went through a process to adopt us as kids. And it involved sending Jesus to die so that we could be his kids. Can I just encourage you? When you are tempted to run away from God, when you are tempted to to run from him instead of to him when you're in trouble, think about what he did just to get you as his kid. Think about the lengths he went to just so you would be his son, would be his daughter. We think about that and we say, sometimes, we say, God did all of that and and I'm not worthy and I'm just... And we just hide ourselves like Adam did. But God did all of that for us when we were still his enemies. God did all of that for us when we had no interest in him. The point that we're not worthy of that level of love, that's the point. That's the whole crux of it. We don't deserve any of it. We don't deserve any of his love. So when we're tempted to run from him rather than to him when we're in trouble, we've got to think about what he did in the first place and why that sets us on a firm foundation to begin with. But God goes further than that. God places a cry inside of us that screams, Abba. Now, Abba is a word that means father. It is roughly translated daddy. And and that's a pretty significant thing. Uh, When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and he said, pray our father, that was countercultural. You would not dare to approach God as your daddy. Because God is the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe, and you are but a speck on a flea on sun. No. I mean, well, yes, God is the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe. But he also puts a cry in us that calls out to him as daddy. Here's the caution, and it comes from Timothy George. Quote, However, we over-sentimentalize this word when we refer to it as mere baby talk and translate it into English as daddy. The word Abba appears in certain legal texts of the Mishnah as a designation used by grown children in claiming the inheritance of their deceased father. As a word of address, Abba is not so much associated with infancy as it is with intimacy. It is a cry of the heart, not a word spoken calmly with personal detachment and reserve, but a word we call or cry out, krazo. It would be presumptuous and daring beyond all propriety to address God as Abba had Jesus himself not bidden us to do so. End quote. So there's a cry in our spirit that screams out for an intimate relationship with God. 
That is not the sort of thing you get from a law. It is not the sort of thing you get by obeying a bunch of rules. My kids don't cry out, Daddy, because they obeyed. They cry out, Daddy, because of the relationship we have by grace through faith. So then, we are no longer slaves but sons. We are join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. I'll quote Warren Wearsby. Quote, when a sinner trusts Christ and is saved, as far as his condition is concerned, he is a spiritual babe who needs to grow, 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3. But as far as his position is concerned, he is an adult son who can draw on the father's wealth and who can exercise all the wonderful privileges of sonship, end quote. Paul is primarily concerned with the believer's position in Christ. He does not concern himself in this epistle with the practical outworkings of faith in Christ. From a positional standpoint, a person who has given themselves to God is an heir, and so are you. That's the big takeaway. Because we have given ourselves to God, in response to the grace that's been given to us, once we exercise faith to believe, we are heirs. We are just as entitled to the kingdom as Jesus. We are positionally in the same space. And that's a big thing to think about because that means that there isn't anything we can do to destroy that. We didn't make it in the first place, so we can't destroy it. If God found us when we were sinners, when we were his enemies, then we can't mess that up on the other side of the cross. We have reached the end of today's Bible Wire podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, or if you'd like more resources related to this podcast, you can find us online at www.zionfellowship.net. We're also available on social media. Look for Zion Fellowship. Thank you for joining us today on Bible Wire.